Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. Well, welcome back for the second installment of our series on Matthew. Whether you're at Peace in Boulder or at Carbon Valley in Firestone, we're glad to have you tuning in. Uh, In this series, we are sitting at the feet of Jesus as we look through the book of Matthew. And here we're learning, uh, first of all, more about who we are. Uh, More importantly, though, we get to learn about who God is and how God's revelation through Jesus means some pretty drastic changes for us. And and not just now in how I live my life from day to day. This is uh, an eternal change. This is an everlasting 180. And today we're going to be exploring, as we read Matthew, the idea of values. That because God is in the picture, it means values and value change. But before we dive into our verses for today, uh, I want to open up with a story to help illustrate and initiate our discussion of, of values and value systems. It's the story of a $15 million find in Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay, well, it all started when Josh, the owner of an auction house, stepped into the garage. Uh, The man who owned the garage, who actually stayed anonymous through this whole story, had called Josh up and asked him to come over and check out some signed Lakers memorabilia that he had. Now, the memorabilia itself only ended up being worth about $300, but while Josh was there in the garage, he noticed an odd painting, a painting whose swirling designs caught his very well-trained eye. And so he asked the man if he could bring that painting back with him to his office and do some research on it. Well, after about three months of studying this painting, Josh's hunch was finally confirmed. The painting was far from junk. It was actually a lost piece made by the late, great abstract artist, Jackson Pollock. And its estimated value, up to $15 million. But before Josh found that painting, you know where it was? It was sitting in a pile of junk. Its owner thought that it was the next closest thing to valueless. In fact, before Josh arrived, the owner of that painting was planning either to throw it out or to sell it at his next garage sale. But with his art background, Josh had a different and and much more correct understanding of that painting's value. What started out in that Scottsdale garage, though, uh, really helps us to, to illustrate a fundamental truth about humanity, right? Just like Josh had a different value system for assessing uh, the worth of art and the worth of other memorabilia, we all have different value systems that we live by. Like when you encounter all the the different facets of your life, the jobs, ideas, 
um, the, the, the homes that you see around you, activities that you might spend your time doing, careers, education, people, food, politics, basically anything at all, you almost, like, you'll almost reflexively assess its worth. And, and just over the next week, See if you can't notice yourself doing this as you encounter all kinds of various things in life. Like it's something that uh, maybe you'll do sometimes very intentionally. Sometimes though it's so subconscious that you don't even notice it. The reality though is that we are all assessors of worth. Assessors of worth when we encounter the various uh, things around us in this world and in our lives. We'll ask questions, again, whether subconsciously or very intentionally. Is this valuable? Is it, is it worth keeping? Is it worth being a part of? Is it worth doing with my very precious time? And then there are other times when I see something and maybe decide that doesn't have much worth. I'll ignore it. I, I don't really have any use for it, right? I'll do what the owner of that Jackson Pollock painting was about to do and toss it out under the garage sale pile. Well, altogether, um, altogether, all of these little assessments that we make end up forming a person's collective value system, right? You don't spend your time and your energy um, on what you think is worthless. No, you spend your time doing and collecting and promoting what you believe is valuable. And why? It's because deep down, we believe that if we surround ourselves with valuable things, if we promote the valuable ideas, if we spend our time doing what we believe is valuable, this also makes us more valuable. For example, uh, some of you might have a value system that admires hard work. And so you put in all the, the extra hours at the office more than probably any of your coworkers, and then you know what you do when you come home? You come home and you find ways to keep yourself busy there. Why? It's because you think this makes you worth more, even if it is just a little bit. Uh, or maybe your value system says that, that traveling is what's really valuable, like experiencing the world, soaking in all the, the beauty and the culture that you can. And as the number of countries or the number of national parks or the number of meaningful uh, multicultural interactions increases, so does your personal value. A lot of people today uh, find a lot of value in the political beliefs that they hold, right? Because I vote this way, because I rapidly promote this cause, because I applaud uh, so-and-so on social media, that's actually how I am going to accrue more personal value. By extension then, I'll also tend to place a higher price tag on the people who have the same or similar values, right? I mean, if it makes me valuable, I have to be fair. It must also make people like me valuable too. And conversely, I'll also tend to look down on or even despise those whose values lie in conflict with the ones that I feel are important. I think though um, that sometimes we're so obsessed with whether or not someone else aligns with uh, one of my particular values or with my value system that we can forget to ask a more important question. Does my value system align with God's? Are all of those 
those places where I look for worth and value in my life, are, are those the places where God tells me I'll actually find it? And that right there is really the issue that Jesus is, is driving toward in the heart of our lesson today. Okay, it's an issue of value, namely the value system of heaven. Uh, so just like last week, we're going to be turning to one of Jesus' parables in Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. And we'll walk through this verse by verse now to consider the important question of values. All right, so we're going to start here with the first couple of verses as Jesus kicks off this parable. Here he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them out into his vineyard. Uh, now, it's worth knowing that a denarius uh, was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. I think that maybe there was a denarius in last week's parable uh, that, that Pastor Tim mentioned last week. Maybe he mentioned the, the value that that had. Uh, but this is really what the Jews of Jesus' day would have considered a proper value. This was a proper assessment of worth for a 12-hour shift. Well, let's read the next couple of verses. What does the landowner do next? About nine in the morning... He went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Okay, so uh, a, a typical Jewish workday would have begun uh, right around 6 a.m. and ended around 6 p.m. Okay, that is a 12-hour shift that they were working. No more complaining about your, your puny little eight-hour shifts when you get home. Uh, so by the time, anyway, so by the time that the second wave of workers comes into the vineyard, they're already one quarter of the way into the workday, right? Uh, so let's just track with the math here. If 12 hours of work was valued at one denarius, how much would you think is fair for nine hours? Right? Three quarters of a denarius, right? Sounds fair? Well, our, our landowner friend, he isn't done yet. Uh, reading on... He, the landowner, went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Okay, so here... The landowner does the same thing at noon with, with six hours left, right? Evaluation, half a day, half a denarius. And then again, he goes out at 3 p.m., gets more people, to which we would say, well, uh, a quarter denarius would be fair. This would be a proper valuation of their work. Yet again, the landowner goes out. Now at 5 p.m., the 11th hour, 60 minutes before the end of the day, that means that there is one-twelfth of the workday left. Doesn't it seem fair that one-twelfth of a denarius uh, is what they should receive for barely breaking a sweat before quitting time? Well, now the workday's over and we come to pay-in time. Let's read the next couple of verses here. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came 
and each received a denarius. Now you would think that in this huddle of workers who are waiting to receive their wages, the landowner would want to show a little bit more courtesy to the ones who were hired first, right? And yet this man, this landowner, very willfully does the opposite. He pays the last ones first. And not only does he pay them first, he pays each of these men who worked for only one hour the full denarius. And this, of course, has the last ones hired, the first ones hired, excuse me, licking their chops a little bit, right? Because if they worked 12 times longer than those five o'clockers, and one hour of work is now being evaluated at one denarius, what should they expect to receive? For working 12 times as long, 12 denarii would seem fair to us, right? And you can practically see the little cartoon money signs uh, replacing the pupils in their eyes here. But what happens? Let's read the next verse. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. One denarius. Really? I mean, is that right? How many of you wouldn't feel a little bit miffed and maybe go find a new job if you worked hard uh, for a full year to earn an $80,000 salary, uh, but then some joker came in and started on December 1st, did the same work as you for one month, and also received a full $80,000 salary? You would probably be thinking that's pretty unfair. Uh, well, let's see how these men react here. When they received it, when they received their denarius, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Right? According to their evaluation, this seems beyond unfair. It seems criminal. They've done so much more, worked so much harder, dripped so much more of their sweat into the soil of that vineyard. How could they not receive better pay for that? Well, now the landowner is going to respond. Let's finish the reading. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So then, what's the point? What's the point that Jesus is trying to make here? Uh, whenever we're dealing with parables, uh, we want to resist the temptation to let ourselves get lost in the details, okay? To try assigning meaning to every last little element of the parable. Um, that can get a little bit dangerous and, and it can get really, really confusing. What we want to do is this. Just look for the singular point of comparison, okay? Just like when we use a metaphor, look for the singular point of comparison. Jesus kicks off this parable saying this story he's telling is like the kingdom of heaven somehow. Okay, he's using this as a teaching tool to emphasize some spiritual truth. And this illustration now is connected to what's been going on and to what he's already been trying to teach his disciples and maybe some of the other people around him. 
Um, now, when I've heard this parable explained in the, the past by people, they usually say something like, uh, it doesn't matter when you become a Christian, just like it didn't matter when the workers came into the vineyard, you still receive the same reward, right? If you're baptized at two days old or, or if you come to faith on your deathbed, it doesn't matter. You get the same reward of heaven when you die. Uh, and while that is a true and biblical sentiment, uh, I don't think that that can really be the meaning here. Okay, we have to look at the larger context surrounding this parable because that's usually where you're going to find your key to unlock the, the deeper spiritual meaning behind that earthly illustration that Jesus is using. So here, uh, if you go back to the second half of chapter 19, which is the, the chapter right before this, you would see Jesus having interactions with two people. The first of those people is a rich young man who comes to Jesus and he wants to know what good thing will win eternal life for a person. Um, really, though, his motive was a little bit different. Really, he came to Jesus and he just wanted some validation. Validation that he had already done what was necessary. He believed that he must have been impressing God because of his great wealth. It was widely believed by the Jews of Jesus' day that lots of money must mean that God is pretty happy with you, right? After all, would he bless you like that if he weren't? The second interaction is with Peter, his disciple. Uh, because after that rich young man leaves, uh, sad at, at what Jesus told him and how Jesus answered, uh, Peter starts boasting about how he and the other disciples have given up everything for Jesus, right? He's thinking that he's like one of those uh, workers in the vineyard who has been hired first. And he's asking now, what will we get for this? What will we receive for everything that we have sacrificed on your behalf, Jesus? And Jesus does concede that the disciples will receive uh, positions of honor in the kingdom of heaven. But then he checks Peter's boasting as he drops pretty much the same line with which he just ended that parable that he read. But Peter, remember, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Here's the point. Heaven's value system is nothing like our value systems. What people or our culture say is of most importance in God's eyes may very well be of least importance. And what humans say, on the other hand, is of little importance, God often says, is of greatest worth and greatest value. Just to reiterate, what I think makes me valuable, God is unimpressed with. And I'm often unimpressed with what God says is of highest value. Now, some of you who are, are, are watching this right now, uh, some of you probably have a value system that looks a little bit more like that of the rich young man. You're rather rooted in a secular mindset, looking to the things that our mainstream culture deems to be valuable in order to find your worth. Uh, and, and so you might take a lot of pride in your career, or you might find a, a lot of comfort in uh, the impressive stuff, the, the big house, the fancy car that your bank account can buy. 
And even if you're not rich and famous, you'll notice yourself envying and trying to emulate the rich and famous because that's what you believe deep down makes a person valuable. That's what justifies a person's existence and makes a life worthwhile. And then I also have to imagine, um, since you are watching a sermon online right now, that there are more than a few of you uh, who look for your worth where Peter looked for his, in your, let's call it your religious report card. Uh, After all, how many Sunday mornings have you given up for God by coming to church? And how much money have you moved from your bank account into the church's bank account through your offerings? How many good times have you given up because you know God's commandments and you strive to keep them, right? Certainly God is going to see all of these sacrifices that you make in your life and smile on you because of them, right? Be careful because our value systems, how we assess worth, whether very religious looking or very secular looking, aren't God's. In fact, Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, talks about this exact idea. In chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. If you are looking for your value in you or boasting in anything you do, the clear message of the Bible says that you are barking up the wrong tree. What you think must be a priceless Jackson Pollock in the eyes of God is actually about as valuable as a kindergartner's crayon drawing stuck on the refrigerator. Okay so we know where not to find our value, where do we find it? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, just a few verses earlier than those ones that I just read, uh, this is where we find the answer. Paul writes, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. True value Lasting value is found in something that would have been considered as worthless, as as grisly, as despised as anything could be. God, though, places priceless worth in an instrument of torture and execution. This thing called a cross. And in the passages right after our parable, the parable that we read in Matthew 20, Jesus paints a picture for his disciples of what's about to happen. And it is something that they would not have fathomed in a million years as having any value for them whatsoever. Because Jesus tells them that they're going to go up to Jerusalem. And they're he's going to be betrayed to his enemies. And his enemies will in turn hand him over to the Romans who will torture him and execute him. 
But this, here of all places, is where you and me, where we find all worth and all value, because this is where we find the greatest chapter in the story of God's grace. Value isn't found in what we do. It's found entirely in God's relentless love and God's relentless grace for us. And at the cross of Jesus, this is where we see God's unique grace at its clearest and finest as the Son of God himself receives my sin, the penalty for my worthless life, and trades it for his perfect, for his perfect one. In this great act, he places upon you and me a price tag unlike anything we could ever hope to earn for ourselves, a price tag which states that to God, we were worth, we are worth his very own divine blood. Not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it, because God in his grace and love has simply decided that it is so. My mother-in-law would probably kill me uh, if she heard me tell you what I'm about to tell you, uh, but I think that there's a really beautiful illustration of this from her life. Uh, you see, she still has her blanket, her blankie, from when she came home from the hospital as an infant. And that means that for 44 years, she's been carrying it, cuddling it, sleeping with it. Do you want to know what a blankie looks like after 40 plus years of that sort of wear and tear? More like a dust rag than anything. It's brown, it's ripped, it's full of holes. If anyone who didn't know better came across it, they would probably throw it away, maybe incinerate it just to be safe. But if you were to ask Carrie, if you were to ask my mother-in-law what her most prized possession is, she wouldn't even have to think about it. It's her blankie. And not because there's some innate, lovable quality in that nasty scrap of fabric itself. That blankie is worth everything simply because she loves it. And that's what the message of the cross says. First, yes, it says your sin is more terrible than you will ever understand or imagine, so terrible that God himself had to die to pay the just punishment for it. But the message of the cross doesn't end there because it also says that in Jesus, you are more loved and more valuable than you ever dreamed possible. We don't find our worth in what we do, not even in the best and most religious looking aspects of our lives. Our worth comes always and only from God and his grace. Amen.